This week on the Northwest Politicast. Cracking down on crossfading as lawmakers look to ban any consumable product that contains THC or any form of THC in combination with beer, wine, spirits, or any other, other type of liquor. Plus, reining in the governor's powers. This is about ensuring the strength of our democracy and our government moving forward. Speaking of COVID, renewing scrutiny over where the virus came from. We may never know the answer to that. And remember, when you hear the word lab leak, then you have to dive into, is it intentional or is it accidental? And hiding from public scrutiny. What exactly is the state legislature hiding? Now, reporting from Seattle, Jeff Pojola. As we so often do during the legislative session, we cover the bills that lawmakers are working on, and a lot of them have made it past the first few hurdles we've talked about the last couple of weeks. But there were some interesting bills on the docket this past week, and Northwest News Radio's Carlene Johnson has been covering a lot of them. She joins us now. And uh, first off, thank you so much for joining us. We, You know, it's not often we see each other. We're all working from home. Yeah, happy to be uh, on the show. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Uh, well, the first one we wanted to talk about this bill that bans the mixing of of booze and pots. Uh, the young kids would call that being cross-faded. So uh, what's going on here? Yeah, I, I didn't even know some of those phrases until this week having to uh, to look that up a bit. But um, most of the companies that are marketing these products, the production of it and the marketing of it is happening up in Canada. So pretty close to Washington mm-hmm. State. Now, we don't have a huge market for that at this point, but you can get online and order these products that are alcoholic beverages that include THC, which is the active ingredient. So are we talking like beer that's infused with pot or be, hard alcohol? It can or? be. There are any number of concoctions that you can uh, wow. that you can do. And we already know that State Patrol, any law enforcement agency you talk to right now, in a lot of accidents, uh, fatal accidents as well, you've got drivers that are using both of those substances. They're they're drinking alcohol and they're getting high on weed but if it's a product that's just contained you can drink it both you know it seems maybe that's easier maybe that's a thing so uh, it's it's in, and the thing is that it's not illegal in this state to to sell this stuff at this point there is there's no legislation so this what 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 passed one chamber this week is going to make it illegal to to manufacture to sell to uh, to imbibe on any of these products that are a combination of alcohol and THC. So you so presumably, provided the bill doesn't change, that it would be illegal to consume that. Absolutely. So how would they be able to tell then if someone just smokes a joint then drinks a beer? That's a good question. Isn't that 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 was a lot of the uh, the discussion in Olympia, and as it moves to the other chamber, uh, I'm sure that's going to be something they delve into further. Because certainly, how do you tell? We don't even have a good test right now to measure when someone's just high, mm-hmm. uh, you know, behind the wheel to see what the level is of their I mean, intoxication. It's not, yeah, it's not as clear cut as a blood alcohol. Level. That's right. It, it, it's that's just right. by the nature of the chemistry. That's right. And then we also have a a moving target on uh, uh, on the blood alcohol content. Right. Mm -hmm. That's likely to be going down to point oh five. So there's a lot of things here to still be uh, considered. But at this point, it looks like these uh, these 
concoctions of alcohol infused with uh, THC are likely to be uh, banned in Washington state. And then another bill that you've been focused on, something that's been a lot more controversial over the last few years, not so much recently because a lot of these things have expired, but the governor's emergency powers as it had to do with COVID. Now, the last of those set to expire in the next month or two. Um, So the day-to-day stuff, we're not really seeing anymore now that the pandemic has really kind of ended, so to speak. But what are state lawmakers looking at doing? Well, the concern has been from very early on in the pandemic um, that these emergency powers uh, that the governor instituted uh, to to protect people, to save lives, the the stay home, stay healthy orders Mm -hmm. we had from very early on. Each one of those lasted 30 days by state law, Mm -hmm. and they were continued and continued and continued. Mm -hmm. Now, other states either called emergency sessions to bring in special sessions to bring in their legislative body to then go, okay, you know what? We agree. This is a good idea. We're Mm. still in a bad place. Mm -hmm. COVID numbers are still high. We didn't do that in Washington state. And so there has been an effort from the Republican side repeatedly, and it has failed again this year, to sort of rein that in and say, okay, you could only do this, Governor, uh, for a certain amount of time, and then we get to weigh in. We get to tell you what our constituents think about that. But it's not so much that it was the governor acting on his own. He has the emergency powers. You had the support, though, for the renewal of these from what was called the Four Corners. The entire legislature didn't vote, but the leaders of each of the conferences gave their support to it. So there was a lot of debate over that too, wasn't there? The bigger picture, from what I understand from the sponsors of the bills that again have failed again this year to get anywhere, um, is that every other state allowed legislative members to have some say in this Mm -hmm. and say, Okay, wait a minute. This is this has gone on too long. Or or let's do this for only a certain amount of time. Okay. Or your mask mandate uh, for you know indoor gatherings yeah. or whatever whatever piece of that. There was a, a great amount of discussion mm-hmm. when Washington State, as you know, is one of the last in the entire nation to have kept the governor's emergency powers in place. Uh, it hasn't gone anywhere. You know, the balance of power in Washington State is yeah. not completely balanced. Yeah. And so uh, once again, those efforts uh, have not gotten. Anywhere. Yeah, and it's certainly a legitimate argument that the legislature should have some say in some of this, but you know, necessarily comparing to other states, kind of apples and oranges. You know, some states have a full-time legislature. Washington state has a part-time legislature that has one year a long session, another year a short session. States do things differently across the board. So it, well, and playing the question, devils, is, yeah, the yeah, question yeah. is more so, should the legislature have input on Absolutely. it? Absolutely. And you had you, plenty of opportunity of, you know, Republicans were saying, okay, then let's do something remotely. Let's let's talk about this because they weren't coming, you know, they weren't convening together in Olympia until just this year, uh, completely in person. So uh, this, this is not an argument that's going to go away. It is <laughs> not an not. argument that's going away anytime soon. And, and then the other bill we wanted to talk to you about is, is the this idea of increasing penalties for prison guards or law enforcement officers who assault inmates. And this this is comes from a rather disturbing story. What's going on here? This was very, very disturbing. And I um, did not remember this case until it was brought to my attention this week. So the uh, young woman by the name of Kimberly Bender, uh, only 23 years old, was incarcerated in the Forks Jail. She had struggled with addiction and had been jailed before and had been suicidal before. And so obviously vulnerable. Well, she ended up being 
victimized by a corrections officer there and complained. And instead of protecting her, they did nothing about they be, it. They being jail administration? It, exactly, exactly. That was the contention. And ultimately, there was a settlement with the family. So there was some acknowledgement on some level from the Department of Corrections that there had been a failure to protect this young woman. She took her own life in 2019. And then... Subsequently, we learned that this same corrections officer had sexually assaulted not just Kim Bender, but three other female inmates. And this man was given a sentence of barely one year behind bars. Compare that to just your, I hate to say it, but your your everyday case of assault that you would see out on the streets, someone's going to get a lot more than a year, I would think. Absolutely. And then and you think about the fact that she's an inmate, right? It's yeah. not that, that she could protect herself. So it's not like she could escape. power issues. There, the, yeah, there's a difference of power. Absolutely. And those corrections officers are charged with protecting those inmates, if you will. And, and he took advantage of that. So this legislation will, at this point, increase the maximum penalty for corrections officers who abuse their uh, authority, sexually abuse or neglect or harass. There's a, there's a variety of things that fall in that category from five years to 10 years being the maximum. And, and this seems to me like a, what's sort of become a bit of a shift in American culture in, in recent years, because for the longest time it was lock them up, throw away the key. Someone who's committed a crime is not a human being worth protecting. And clearly there was something of that mentality, at least among the perpetrator here. I think so. And he took advantage of the fact that this woman was um, coming off of uh, drug addiction while she was behind bars and um, was suffering. Um, But ultimately, the fact that she ended up taking her life behind bars, even though she should have been on suicide watch based on some previous issues, um, you left a little boy. It wasn't just the assault. There were failures at the jail all the way around. It sounds like many levels of, of failures. And ultimately, it left a little boy who is today six years old without his mom. And so um, the fact that we would increase the maximum penalty from five years to 10 years for those who are charged with protecting these inmates um, who abuse that authority is something that lawmakers seem to agree is a, is a good call. So how, where is this bill? Is it passed it out of pa- the chamber? Passed or? one chamber and now moved over to the other. I'm sure there will be some amendments. There was plenty of discussion as to the different uh, penalties that you know could, for the range of that maximum uh, penalty to 10 years, that'll be hashed out. But but I, um, I believe this is certainly going to become law, and it makes sense given the horrendous nature of, of what happened to that young woman. All right, Carlene Johnson, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jeff. Still to come. What exactly are those state lawmakers hiding as the legislature hopes to exempt itself from public scrutiny? When the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. A member of the state's Sunshine Committee is stepping down as lawmakers come under more scrutiny for how they handle public records. The committee was created in 2007 to ensure the legislature was complying with the Public Records Act. But attorney and now former committee member Kathy George says it feels like they've been spinning their wheels. And there's now the possibility that the committee could be disbanded altogether. Kathy joined Northwest News Radio's Kim Shepard to talk more about her decision and efforts to keep the public 
in the Public Records Act. When the Sunshine Committee was created, uh, there were about 300 exemptions. And since the Sunshine Committee has been in place, the number of exemptions has grown to more than 600. So uh, that gives you an idea of (laughs) the trend in the legislature towards more and more secrecy. But we do still have an overarching right to know in the Public Records Act. The Public Records Act was passed by the voters decades ago, and it was a very strong statement that the people control the government and need to know how the government does business and how our government resources are used and how policies are developed And so disclosure is supposed to be the rule with narrow exceptions. And we do still have the core principles intact, and and we still have some very strong language in the Public Records Act about the public's right to know taking precedence over government inconvenience and embarrassment to public officials and and that sort of thing. We, We still have that. But again, the number of exceptions to disclosure requirements just keeps growing and growing. And the importance of that to the public process, the the fact that people need to be able to access information in order to support them being a part of the process. That's absolutely right. And before I was a lawyer, I, I was a journalist myself. And as a democracy, really depend, especially on the media, having full and prompt access to government records, because that's how most people learn about what's going on in government. You do have citizens who have the time and the the motivation and and the resources to track government themselves, but most people are going about their jobs and their daily lives and depend on the media to inform them about important policy issues whether government programs are working as intended and all of that. And as you probably know, as a journalist, it can be challenging. The trend has been towards more and more secrecy. And the partisan divides have done nothing but grow deeper in recent years. Something I think a lot of folks might not realize is that even politicians have to use public disclosure laws to get some information. What do we know about who is making public records requests at the state level? Is it largely the public and the media? Or are there entities that are taxing the system that are making legislators want to say, we need to clamp down on this? Well, you know, the legislature took the position for many years that It was not subject to the Public Records Act at all. A coalition of media companies sued. And in 2019, the Washington Supreme Court said that legislators are subject to the Public Records Act themselves. Their offices are agencies under the Public Records Act, just like cities and counties and school districts and so forth. So I do remember at the time that was unfolding, the legislature passed a bill to exempt itself from the Public Records Act, and the public was just furious about that. There was a record number of calls and emails to the governor to veto that law, which which the governor ultimately did. But going back to your question, who makes records requests? I think it depends on the agency. With the legislature, it's going to be lobbyists and constituents for the most part, right? Because 
they're solely a policymaking uh, body. With agencies, it's going to be more citizens who are trying to address concerns about policies or programs. It's going to be the media. It's going to be lawyers. Uh, lawyers actually account for a pretty healthy share of public records requests. I haven't seen any recent statistics, but I but I have read that. And and then your citizen activists. I've heard people talk about records requests being weaponized. Is that something that is a true concern that really happens, or is that conjecture? There are a handful. Well, I don't even know if you could say it's a handful. There are some, <laughs> not many occasions when public records requesters have overreached. Some years ago, there was a particular requester who would make requests for all records of an agency, every single record in the existence. That created, as you can imagine, quite a stir and quite a problem. And then there more recently has been concern about a couple of requesters who bring an unusually large number of public records lawsuits Whether that's weaponizing, I guess, is in the eye of the beholder. All I can say is that in my experience, working with journalists and working with citizens who have legitimate concerns about government, the Public Records Act is a tool for democracy. It's it's not a weapon. And the government should not perceive the Public Records Act as a weapon. It should perceive the Public Records Act as a core function of government that connects government to the people and allows them to be informed participants. Yeah. And as you mentioned, the voters approved the Public Disclosure Act in 1972. It was a bipartisan group of senators who introduced the bill to create the Sunshine Committee. And since then, there have been hundreds of exemptions added to this law. So it sounds like they're having to police themselves, basically, right? Because you have to get bills passed through the legislature in order to get them to police them. It just sounds like there should be an outside agency, perhaps, doing this work. Yeah, this was the first year that the legislature did not even introduce a bill to implement the Sunshine Committee recommendations. So you could say that it's a low point. And in the past three years, there were bills introduced that didn't pass. So it's been been quite a long drought. (laughs) And this coincides with the legislature. I mentioned earlier the Supreme Court um, decision. This this drought coincides with the legislature being subject to the Public Records Act itself. And there's just growing concern that the legislature just really isn't interested in improving transparency anymore. And this session... We have the new issue that legislators are claiming a constitutional privilege to withhold their own records from disclosure. So that's the atmosphere we're facing right now in Olympia. Yeah, I think it was, wasn't it executive privilege they had or there was legislative privilege? Now they're saying constitutional privilege. How are they even differentiating there? Well, many of us believe that there is no such privilege. Uh, they're, They're calling it a legislative privilege, but they're saying it's sort of based on an executive privilege that the governor has. And it's a rather 
tortured <laughs> analysis, as far as I can tell. And there is a lawsuit pending on that. So I guess we'll find out from the courts. Now, this is an issue, as we've been talking about, is being debated at the state level. But it's something that is just as big of a concern in local politics, right? Absolutely. Yes. A good number of um, public records problems that we hear about are in cities, counties, school districts, local level governments. I think it's interesting, too, that one of the issues that they bring up is the fact that when you have a smaller jurisdiction, they don't have the personnel, they don't have the money to put public disclosure systems in place. But I really feel like we should be able to leverage technology here. I mean, if we have electronic records to begin with, then there's no effort that needs to be made to categorize or distribute or whatever. They're already available there. What efforts are being made to leverage technology in that way? And and what stumbling blocks or hurdles are, are you finding? There actually is a state law that encourages governments to proactively post records online to the extent possible, and that, that's a mantra, the Washington Coalition for Open Government. Please just make it easy on yourselves. Put the, put the commonly requested records on your websites, and then you don't have to worry about processing public records requests. It would make a lot of sense for governments to do more of that. And I can't speak to what kind of resources they have for that, Uh, But there are some good examples that the city of Seattle, for example, has a proactive posting of police reports. Right. Um, The high concern incidents. Yeah, that's a good example. And there are other examples where you don't have to make a request for a particular record. You just go online and there it is. And that would make life easier for entities as far as complying with Public Records Act. But it is true. There is some truth to the fact that the Public Records Act is an unfunded mandate. You know, the voters passed this broad disclosure requirement, and there isn't a line item in the state budget for local governments to comply with that. So there is some truth to needing more resources than are provided. I don't know what the answer to that is. It's it's a political issue and it, and it comes down to, you know, what are the priorities? And unfortunately, too often, responding to public records requests is not considered a priority. Now, you can listen to much more of this conversation, including Kathy's tips for anyone who might be having trouble getting access to public records. You can listen by subscribing to the Deeper Dive podcast with Kim Shepard, available at nwnewsradio.com and all podcast platforms. Coming up next. TikTok might soon be removed from your child's phone. When the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Joining me now is ABC News correspondent Andy Field from Washington, D.C. and TikTok. It's not something that you or I are really into, but the younger generation certainly enjoys it. The social media app owned by the company ByteDance out of Beijing. Now there's talk of it being completely banned in the United States. What's going on there? Well, that's, again, a bill that's going through the House uh, that may make it to the Senate. I'm not sure it's going to get the same amount of support. But certainly there seems to be a whole lot of support uh, for a bill that was passed and the president uh, issuing an order that TikTok be taken off of all government devices, whether they're uh, portable phones or computers or tablets. And that contractors who work with the U.S. government and get paid by the U.S. government have to take it off their devices in the next 90 days. 
they have repeatedly, the uh, experts in the federal government that deal with cyber, have said repeatedly that Americans are at risk by having this on their devices, that the company that you mentioned that owns TikTok has to report all kinds of personal data information to the Communist Party in China. What is China doing with that? We don't know the answer to that, but certainly they can do all kinds of things in in terms of if the application manages to take personal data off your devices, social security numbers, credit card numbers, even looking at your patterns of what you buy, what you look at there in order to influence how you make decisions in the future uh, when it comes to elections or uh, anything else. And all of those things are very dangerous and corrosive to the United States. And that's why uh, Congress is looking and banning this on every device in the country. How likely do you think that is? Hard to say. There are a lot of libertarians and a lot of Democrats who who believe in freedom of speech, and they don't think that uh, you should be telling. And, and certainly it actually goes against what many Republicans say, that you shouldn't be putting regulations on companies. But again, this is a foreign entity that seems to be working hand in glove with the Chinese government. So if that's the case, uh, that may change some minds up there, and it could indeed pass. But right now, they don't have a good headcount on this. All right, ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jeff. Staying on the topic of China, a top White House official says there is no consensus about the origins of COVID-19. This after a published report that the Energy Department concluded that the coronavirus was the result of a lab leak in China. But that assessment was made with low confidence. ABC News White House correspondent Karen Travers. The Energy Department now reportedly has indicated it believes COVID's origin was most likely the result of a lab leak in China. Still, Biden National Security Spokesman John Kirby said Monday, There is not a consensus right now in the U.S. government about exactly how COVID started. Kirby said once there's information the U.S. government is confident in, it will, quote, absolutely be shared with Congress and the American people. The president believes it's really important that we continue that work and that we find out as best we can how it started so that we can better prevent a future pandemic. Karen Travers, ABC News, the White House. More on that as we talk to a former FBI agent. When the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel. Well, for three years, we have anguished over how COVID-19 became a worldwide pandemic. Over 7 million people dead, dramatically changing each and every part of our lives. But we still don't know how it all started. Joining us now is Brad Garrett, ABC News crime and terrorism analyst and former FBI agent. And now we're seeing, as we talked about in our last segment, more and more credence given to the theory that this leaked from a lab. Why is this theory getting more traction now? So let's go back to April of 2020, because the FBI actually made a statement publicly that they thought that it was more likely, they didn't say for sure, but more likely this was a lab leak. And, you know, people were skeptical of that because I think there was a lot of uh, uh, you know misinformation for sure, but the hysteria that, you know, the the that maybe the Chinese had done this intentionally, which clearly wouldn't make any sense because they would have killed millions of their own people and wrecked their economy. So I don't think anybody really holds much merit that it was done intentionally. Accident does make sense. You know, the other possible scenario that's been extensively discussed is what they call, uh, uh, I think they they call it a wet market, which means they have live animals in the market. And 
some believe, scientists in particular, think that it could have started there. An animal had it, um, gave it to a human, and then the human spread it out into the Wuhan, which obviously then went all over the world. So now we're seeing, whether it's the Department of Energy or the FBI or the various members of the intelligence community, all saying with varying degrees of confidence that it seems like it may have been a lab leak. So why the disagreement among the intelligence community? Well, you know, like, I don't think the CIA have ever said anything publicly about where they stand on this. But it's really not the nature of the intelligence community, even though the FBI is part of it. But, you know, the FBI is a hybrid, obviously, because it does criminal stuff and a lot of of overt uh, investigations, etc. So, you know, my sense is that they have their own belief, and it may well align with what you and I are talking about, but they're not going to talk about it publicly. And, of course, the big missing piece in this conversation is what classified information do they all have that you and I don't have as to corroborating the statement that it was a lab leak? For example, do they have somebody that they eventually were able to interview that worked in the lab uh, that really would know in the ins and outs of what happened back in late 2019 when we think this probably started? Um, are there communications, whether on phones, emails, social media, wherever it might be, that support this line of thinking. Again, I have no idea, but they got to this conclusion some way, even, like I said, back in 2020. So, so so we'll see. But I think the important thing is we really do need to figure this out because one virus, as you mentioned, killed multi-millions of people, and it clearly could happen again. So if it came from a lab, if it was part of that Wuhan Center for Virology that was near that wet market you talked about, and it, and it accidentally leaked from there, how does that change how we approach a pandemic or how we deal with what has happened? Because if we know that it was a leak and not intentional, obviously, if it was intentional, it has all sorts of ramifications. But assuming it's a leak, then it, it lets you know, well, first of all, it may heighten the community that does this type of research as to what what are their security steps. I mean, we have some highly sensitive labs, like the one called USAMRID, which is north of me from D.C., that the anthrax case was based around because it was one of those renegade scientists that actually mailed the anthrax because he had access to it. So it's, I suppose it's safety protocols, but also an awareness of, okay, China obviously was working on coronavirus in, in this Wuhan lab. And so why were they working on it? Why was it there? I, I guess it's an awareness raising thing, hoping that it will get us maybe in front of the next one of these, if in fact we have one, and many of, us, many of us believe that we will eventually have another one. Obviously, the Chinese Communist Party has stringently denied that it came from a leak. They still maintain that it was uh, animal to human transmission. But right. what has the White House said about this? Because you have the, the varying branches of the executive department saying, you know, as we said, with differing degrees of confidence that this came from a lab. Has the White House said anything? Not that I'm aware of, uh, to, to not to the, to the degree that the FBI and the Department of Energy, who recently stated that, and they're not quite as excited about the, it's more likely it came from a from a lab leak, but they are saying that. Uh, and so from their perspective, I, I guess that's, you know, their sort of general feelings. Um, I, I don't know 
why the White House hasn't said one way or the other, you know, maybe leaving it to their investigative and science folks to make the statements since they're the ones that actually have the informed opinion as to what it may or may not be. And why the Department of Energy on this? Uh, well, the Department of Energy does an unbelievable number of things. It's a huge, they have a huge uh, science department. They, they, they do all sorts of research and studies of of a number of things, when, even when it comes to nuclear stuff. I mean, because the, you know, the word energy obviously covers a lot of things. And they are responsible for a lot of things that that you and I and others don't really think about day in and day out. So they were clearly in the middle of this because they also work with labs and work with uh, different types of sensitive and or contagious materials because of the type of the nature of the work they do. And finally, what are we expecting to happen next? Well, I don't know. I think if you think about how you would have to investigate this case, it's not easy. You can't go to China. You can't interview people in the lab. You can't interview people in Wuhan. So what are you left with? I mean, you're left with sources. You're left with intercepts, telephone conversations, whatever it might be. Um, and maybe they have some of those. I have I have no idea. But that, that's how you're going to have to go about this, because clearly you're not going to get it from the Chinese government. So don't expect unless something really big happens for this to sort of progress in any quick fashion. All right, Brad Garrett, crime and terrorism analyst for ABC News and former FBI agent. Thank you so much for your time and insight. You're welcome. Take care. Coming up next. CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference is underway, but it might as well be called MAGA Pack. When the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Once again, here's Kim Shepard. The Conservative Political Action Conference touts itself as the largest and most influential gathering of conservatives in the world. But this year, attendance is light. ABC's Andy Fields on the Northwest Newsline. So who is on the schedule this year and, and who's skipping it? Well, it's a shorter list on who's on the schedule. Donald Trump is on the schedule. And that may be one of the reasons that a lot of other folks aren't showing up. But there are, are other issues involved. In fact, it's it's now become a who's who of who's not showing up. We've got former Vice President Mike Pence, Ron DeSantis, Governor of Florida, uh, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, South Dakota Governor Christy Nome. All of these folks are not showing up at this event here, uh, which used to be a must-attend event for anyone who was running for president. But suddenly, all these Republicans are giving CPAC the cold shoulder. Republicans suddenly rearranging their sock drawer, washing their hair, just not available for this big event. Part of it has to do with the man who's running this here, Matt Schlapp, the head of the American Conservative Union. He's also been accused of groping a staffer in a car ride in November during the election here. Now, he's denied these allegations, but uh, this is a lawsuit against him. So you've got that distraction. You've got the fact that Donald Trump usually sucks all the oxygen out of the room, and there's a whole lot of people that want to run against him. And as you mentioned, this was a must-attend event. So are there any alternatives that conservatives are going to? Well, some of them are going to this, which happening at the same time, I think it's called the Club for Growth. It's an anti-tax group, uh, and they're basically trolling for cash there. They're looking for donors that are going to be at that event. So many of them will be there. Now, of course, a lot of the names that I mentioned, none of them have declared for president other than Donald Trump. 
So it'll be interesting to see what they have to say and where they're going to go. Many of them are expected to jump into the race here. Many of them are a little bit afraid of the fact that Donald Trump is the 900-pound gorilla in the room here. And once they get into the race, they are going to be subject to just endless assaults, verbal and otherwise, by the former president who doesn't like anyone in the room getting any attention but himself. In the meantime, uh, last night, President Joe Biden speaking at the House Democrat retreat and sounding very much like a candidate there. He did. He, he, he ticked off all the things that the Democrats have accomplished, as well as things that they've accomplished with the Republicans, telling the Democrats, these were the House Democrats, that he hopes that they can find some more common ground over the next two years so they can accomplish more things here. It gets a little tougher when you get in an election year, especially for president, for uh, Republicans to sway one way or the other. But he said, look, he, he divided the Republican Party, this is the president, uh, into two parts. He called the extremist MAGA Republicans, the people that are, are still denying that Donald Trump lost the last election and uh, that the January 6th attack on the Capitol was not that big a deal. And then he said there are a lot of moderate Republicans that he thinks Democrats can work with to actually get things accomplished. And so they're going to try to do that over the next year and a half before the next election. Uh, the president has been fairly successful in doing that over the first two years. He hopes to repeat that. And that's one of the reasons that he was up there making strategy plans with fellow Democrats. ABC's Andy Field on the Northwest Newsline. And that's Northwest News Radio's Kim Shepard, and that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz, and of course, our brand new one, Deeper Dive with Kim Shepard. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.